Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of a bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi, in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. You are joined by just Charlie today and you know what happens when they leave me in charge of all the controls and the microphones and the podcast recording. Yes, you are going to the 17th century and I think you're going to like it. So I'm joined by a wonderful guest today. Amy Saunders has recently submitted a PhD examining the reconstruction of Stuart Kings and Queens in heritage sites. And she's been addressing such themes as patronage, sexuality, identity, colonialism and conflict. So we're covering a wide range of stuff. So it goes without saying that we want her back to talk to us about the connection between modern heritage representations and the modern monarchy. Very, very much so. Um, She's been published several times over on all of these themes and more, and we're very thrilled to have her with us today to discuss Catherine of Braganza. Charles II was her husband. Let's frame her like that. Hello, Amy. Hi, Charlie. <laughs> it's great to be back. <laughs> it's really, really good to have you. And it's I'm really excited to talk about um, the Stuart Queens, um, especially Stuart Queens consort. Um and to talk about Catherine of Braganza again. Now, when when we sort of spoke, the two of us, and you said you wanted to talk about Catherine, there was a moment when I thought, well, actually, we've had Eilish Gregory on recently talking about Catherine of Braganza. Do we do another Catherine episode? And then I suddenly thought, how many times have we sat here on this podcast and talked about Anne Boleyn? <laughs> it's so true. And I feel like that is going to be one of my big points today in that in comparison to their Tudor counterparts, mm -hmm. the Stuart Queen consorts get very little love um, in like books, in heritage, in fiction, in film. They are much less um, examined, but no less deserving of our attention. Fantastic. It's a, it's a brilliant point to make. So in our little intro, I mentioned that she was Charles II's wife. No, Charles II was her husband. I wanted to introduce her in her own right because the focus of your work has been on the representation of our Stuart Queens in modern heritage. If these women are represented at all in modern heritage, because they seem shockingly absent to me when I go around, how are they represented? Yeah, so um, the Stuart Queen consorts are really rarely presented in heritage sites, despite an amazing range of material culture that could be used to explore their lives um, that we know is in museum and heritage site collections. There's amazing portraits, there's loads of coinage, and there's fabulous things that could be on display. Um, and you will often see portraits and objects from the period, especially mm -hmm. if you're visiting like a National Trust house or an English heritage site. So if you go to Montague House or if you go to Bolsover Castle, those sorts of places, very kind of lots of 17th century going on there uh -huh. but the way the queen consorts themselves are interpreted in those places is often really oversimplified and it fails to recognize their activities and their agency beyond their position as just being the wife of the king and their potential to produce an heir um so yeah in my kind of phd i've looked at three Stuart queen consorts and there are more and there are people i know who are working on them 
Um, but um, yeah, so I've been focusing on Anna of Denmark, who's wife of James the Sixth and First, Henrietta Maria, who's wife of Charles the First, and of course Catherine of Braganza, who's wife of Charles the Second. Um, and I know we're going to focus on Catherine today, and obviously we've already mentioned Eilish's amazing um, previous podcast with you. Um, so I'm not going to I'm going to try to not cover a lot of the biographical stuff because Eilish did a great job. Um, but when we see them in heritage sites they are really often either completely ignored overshadowed or just avoided Um, and this is kind of related to a whole load of different reasons Um, their religion um, their foreign identity um, and then for Catherine the fact that she doesn't have children um, and both her and Henrietta Maria don't lead to the modern monarchy and I think that has a really kind of strong kind of impact on how we represent them in heritage sites. Gosh, I mean, if we have any knowledge of, of Catherine of Braganza at all when we're going into a heritage site. So when, when we talk about heritage sites, we're talking about museums, castles, um, stately homes, these kind of you know, lovely places where we go um, on our days off and have fun. If we've got any sort of prior knowledge of Catherine, it tends to be around her, quote unquote, failure to produce an heir to the throne. Uh, because obviously Charles II has no legitimate children with his queen. Um, what what challenges does a narrative like this present in a heritage setting? So yeah, this is something I've become really kind of passionate about as I've been working through my research, and is one of the things that's kind of most angered me <laughs> as I've been doing it. Um, and I think yeah, it's really important to say now that any time we say failed or failure, we are putting air quotes around it. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, as you say, Catherine is largely remembered for being the queen who failed to have children um, and was overshadowed by these glamorous, fabulous mistresses that everyone's really interested in and everyone wants to know about. Um, and the suggestion that kind of Catherine was dull and traditional and a bit of a pushover and Eilish did a great job um, of kind of ripping that to pieces <laughs> um, in your last in your last podcast, um, because Catherine was really engaged in patronage was really interested um in horticulture and the navy and all sorts of things um and her and charles did have a relationship it just isn't the relationship that people want to imagine for a royal couple um but yeah in terms of presenting her as a woman who failed to have children in heritage sites i think it's a really big problem because one in five women in the uk experience a miscarriage and one in a hundred experience recurrent miscarriages which is where you have three or more in a row um and catherine had multiple miscarriages um so presenting the value of any historic woman as being tied entirely to their ability to produce children is not only misrepresentative of what was actually going on at the time but also has the ability to affect the visitor in a huge variety of negative ways because a lot of your visitors both men and women will be going through fertility um, difficulties and worries Um, and it places the again air quotes blame only on Catherine and this really removes the anxiety that both Charles and Catherine felt around fertility and around Catherine's pregnancies and it just reinforces the idea that pregnancy childbirth and child rearing are all things that are only connected to women uh, which is really damaging and not reflective of the royal couple themselves or of how um, a lot of modern visitors view their own fertility journeys Um, and I really think we need to have a really good think of how like nationally across the board of how we present themes of parenthood and pregnancy in heritage sites um, because it's just not done very well um, and there's so many opportunities for kind of 
co-collaboration with um, different community groups and with different charities and things to kind of bring that narrative out of the shadows and be like, this isn't something that's shameful or unusual or, you know, it's a horrible thing that happens, but it will most people will a lot of people will experience it in some way um which i think is especially important because i'm pretty sure this month is miscarriage awareness month um so i feel like this is a very appropriate time to be talking about this Um, yeah i think that's a it's an excellent point and it's a it's a troubling narrative that we are still the fact that we're feeding this to people throughout throughout all historical writing and historical sources that it was the it was the wife who failed. It was Catherine who who failed. Whereas, you know, the all of the sort of fertility issues that that Charles and Catherine were going through, and you know, let's let's be let's be realistic and pragmatic about this. Politically, they did need to have an heir. This is the most important function of of the the consort is conti- continuing the the royal line. They were going through all of this in the 17th century and they don't have the 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 advantages that we have now there may have been there may have been medical interventions that they could have had had they been around now but as a couple who desperately wanted children and couldn't have them and we we know a lot about you know Catherine and the the stresses that she was put under it is no wonder that that woman could not you know she probably wasn't in any position to um to conceive a child because the stress and the pressure on her would have been immense. Yeah, completely. And, you know, modern medicine has proven how important stress is in terms of being able to conceive a child. And I think one of the problems with often how we talk about Catherine is there's this, like by basically saying she failed to have children, we're also ignoring that she did have those pregnancies and she did have those experiences and that those experiences and that pain and the like the emotions she had in that period are just as important to her um in terms of kind of yeah her own life kind of perception and narrative um and so by just saying oh she didn't have children we're wiping off a whole kind of section of female experience that is kind of seen as oh this is too unclean to talk about this is this is not what we should talk about in polite society um but it happens as i said to one in five people um and so yeah i think to carry on presenting her in that way is just really really damaging yeah i'm thinking about now later later Stuart queens like um mary and anne both of whom had their their own struggles with fertility and and you know someone that we've started perhaps thinking a bit more about because we had the film the favorite um which was obviously a huge success and olivia coleman's portrayal of of the queen and you know, how she handled the scale of loss that that she had i mean that's it it's almost easier to do in a in a setting like that in a kind of artistic uh film book you know a story a novel in that sort of setting but then when you've actually trying to bring that into heritage it's a it's a whole other whole other challenge for you yeah it definitely is it's not something that's going to be easy um but you know the same to be said about how more recently we've been addressing kind of narratives of colonialism and empire and gender and sexuality like 15 years ago people thought that was and it is still a process and we've still got a long way to go but 15 years ago people were kind of bulking at the idea of oh gosh this is going to be really hard how are we going to do it um 
and it's all about research and time and funding um and so the same goes the same goes with this it's not going to happen overnight um but we at least need to be thinking about it amazing um okay so let's let's move the conversation on and look at some of the other queen's consort let's look at the and we're using our air quotes again let's look at our successful Stuart queen consorts such as anna of denmark and henrietta maria who who produce the air and and carry on the line where do they figure in the telling of their royal their royal children's stories in heritage because we talk of course we talk about charles the first and we talk about james the first where does where does anna fit into our telling of the story so yeah so it's really um kind of interesting and this kind of links back to some of the things i was saying a second ago um but essentially in a lot of the older interpretation texts, so the interpretation text that's permanent has been at a site for a really long time, um, you know, could have been created, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Um, she's just completely missing, <laughs> um, which is just absolutely horrific. So um, kind of the best example, um, best again, <laughs> in a bad way, um, Stirling Castle, wonderful site, wonderful yeah. things. They've done great work kind of with the slightly earlier Stuart stuff and reconstructing the building. Yeah. Wonderful. But the interpretation for kind of the birth of um, Prince Henry, so Anna and James's first child of son um, at that site, um, is all about James. It's all about the male, <laughs> the male line producing a like idealized prince who doesn't even become king because he dies. Um, but it's all about the men. And Anna of Denmark is not mentioned by name once in the interpretation. So there's a nice little quote from a contemporary person who was there. Um, and they obviously just call her the queen. And so she just kind of gets reduced to this nameless queen within the, within the site as a whole. Um, which is shocking because James commissioned um, a whole new chapel royal at Stirling to christen um, Henry um, in. Um, and then they had like a big kind of ceremony and like party afterwards. Um, and they waited. They didn't kind of baptize him straight away because they wanted certain people to be able to come from Denmark and from England to represent those kind of different connections. So Anna was present. A lot of times the queen isn't present because she's still kind of in those moments post-birth. But she was present at those celebrations. And there's this amazing ship that they kind of constructed for the celebration. Um, and that is an entire kind of the whole point of the ship is that it links to James's journey um, to collect Anna um, and bring her back to Scotland. So that whole thing is all about Anna of Denmark. And she is not mentioned once in that interpretation. Wow. Um, she's either just the queen um, or just not there. Um, and I will talk a little bit more probably later about the new National Portrait Gallery. And they've done a really good job in some areas. You know, they've really focused on the decolonization and things. But in the Stuart women's section, um, the the sons and the ch the other children are still just referred to as whoever, like son of James the sixth and first, and you're like, no, where is Anna in this? <laughs> um, and even on Anna's portrait, she's only referred to as the daughter of her father. Um, and so there's just this constant removal of these royal women in in those spaces. Um, and because a lot of kind of the interpretation of that period in heritage focuses on the monarchy if we're removing those women we are losing all our women <laughs> um so yeah it's she's completely kind of 
taken out of it. Um, which is really interesting because then her daughter, um, Elizabeth Stewart, um, is in it as a mother all the time because it's through her that George the first comes to the throne as the first Hanoverian. Um, and so she's the connection kind of between the Stuarts and the present monarchy. Um, so she gets celebrated all the time as a mother, um, and almost reduced to only being kind of a mother, but at least you know her name. Um, whereas Anna kind of just disappears off somewhere she's done her job off you pop yeah it's incredible she's she's one of those women that i just want to know more about and um and shout out to our our friend stephen virapen who really told her story so wonderfully in his book on james the first the wisest fool and it seems that those two had a real partnership it wasn't you know for for all that james was in no ways a faithful husband and at this point, nobody expects royal husbands to be faithful. Sorry if that, if that spoils anybody's illusions. Nobody expected them to be faithful to their to their wives. But she seems to have been a real force to be reckoned with. She was strong and powerful, and she dealt with so much. And you know the 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 danger of coming across from um, from Denmark and the the journey from Scotland to England. She's she's quite a woman. We need oh to... yeah, she's amazing. She's um so Stephen obviously has done a great job, and then um Gemma Field has done a great job, um and there is also um I don't know quite when, but there is a new biography coming out of her, um mm. hopefully fairly soon, um and I'm so excited for that because we're finally seeing kind of people engaging with Anna of Denmark in a way that isn't just cool she had some children she had a bad relationship with James end of conversation (laughs) because they were as you say much more of a partnership and she had talents and interests that he could recognize were useful to them as a monarchy um and that you know were utilized and that she that she did and the same kind of goes for her confessional identity um that there were aspects of when and people are still arguing over whether she did convert to Catholicism or not, but her probable conversion to Catholicism, James then could use aspects of that politically. Um, and I think that's kind of another thing that will be fascinating to kind of see develop in research over the next few years. That's interesting. So you, you've led us very neatly onto the next thing I want to discuss, because, <laughs> of course, for, for Anna of Denmark, she very much had to be um, seen outwardly as a Protestant in order to come and take the English throne with her husband. He was very, very careful and very canny. He knew that they had to be presented as a Protestant succession. That was that was important. But the religious practices of some of these Stuart queens, they're often controversial. Um, how is that reflected in, in heritage science? Yeah, so it's actually really weird in that essentially for most heritage sites it's not represented at all um and i think some of this is like a fear that as a country that is kind of officially protestant that we don't want to talk about these catholic women or like a fear that well if we're going to talk about it then we have to put lots of context in and then we have to talk about conflict and they don't want to talk about conflict in the kind of realm of a again quote unquote successful kind of early modern monarchy um and a lot of that i think again is related to the fact that we still have a monarchy i think it affects it 
hugely. Um, and a lot is made of how Catherine um, and Henrietta Maria both have kind of these um, stipulations in their marriage negotiations that they're going to be allowed to carry on worshipping Catholicism. And a lot of people make a really big deal out of this. Um, and obviously it did have kind of a lot of repercussions for them because Catholicism was so different um, to Protestantism. But Anna also has the same stipulations in her marriage contract. So when she marries James, she's coming from Denmark um, and she's Lutheran and she comes over and they agree that she is still going to have the right to worship in that way and that she isn't going to be expected to worship as part of the Church of Scotland. So there's already a precedent for that. Um, it's just that she's still seen as Protestant um, and the other two are Catholic and it's that's kind of where the division comes. Um, but so much is made of that happening for the later two and you think well actually it was already happening um and yeah for Anna um in heritage I think some of the kind of not discussing her confessional identity is about that oh we still know the debate is happening um and so we don't want to commit ourselves to something on a label because that label might last 20 years um and we will kind of want to future proof it and not talk about it but by excluding their confessional identity. We're excluding a huge part of their agency and their self-expression um, and an opportunity to discuss not only conflict meaningfully, but also the importance of political and diplomatic relations with other parts of Europe that were other religions. Um, so, yeah, it's often very oversimplified and it doesn't need to be. <laughs> Exactly. And also, I mean, you by by not reflecting that and not talking about it, you take away a massive part of their agency because Catherine yeah. of Braganza was so aware of her marriage contract. And she I mean, I imagine her keeping that in her skirts sort of <laughs> the whole time that she was married. She was not going to be um, I sorry, I can't think of any better way to say it. she wasn't going to be dicked around. She she knew what she was entitled to. She knew yeah. she was entitled to practice. And the fact that she, you know, that this leads to something as awful as the Popish plot, which I stand by being like the QAnon of its time. It was so bonkers and so widespread and so disruptive and upsetting. Um, Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. All because of her Catholicism, which she was entitled to. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's, yeah, that's always one of the things. So like, you know, if we were thinking modern day, would you expect someone to give up their religion because they were getting married to one particular person? And the answer for most of us is no, we would not. Um... And I think, yeah, that is really interesting because actually the only time Catherine's confessional identity does come into heritage sites is if they're very briefly discussing the Popish plot. And it's always done quite briefly. It's never kind of in a lot of detail. But that's the only time that she really gets her confessional identity discussed at all. And obviously it's in a really negative and, as you say, yeah. totally bizarre and crazy situation. And the only other time that I've really seen Henrietta Maria's 
um, confessional identity explored was in did you go to the Charles the First King Collector exhibition twice I Ah, loved it (laughs) amazing so I I basically went three times and wrote a million notes Um, and the art was amazing you know that was fabulous the stuff that was on display was fantastic but Henrietta Maria had her own room um, and they called it the Queen's House um, which is kind of what we now call the house that she lived in in Greenwich um, and they had some of her art on the wall and it was really like it was fine Um, but they never mentioned her in relation to some of the other portraits in the previous rooms and this kind of to me really suggested that it was like well here's Henrietta Maria's little like Catholic little hideout um, and here is all the stuff and she only patronises like Italian Catholic artists Um, whereas in the room before there was all these amazing like family portraits and they were all talked about like as Charles the First, as belonging to him, as about being about him. Um, when in reality, Henrietta Maria commissioned some of them, she would have sat for them, she like had other versions of those paintings made and sent them to her sisters, um, like who were queens in other parts of Europe. Um, and so to me, that really they were trying to be like, yeah, look at her Catholicism and her agency, um, which was great. But what actually happened was it being like well, this is just her and she's not connected to her family or her English subjects in any way. She's completely other. She's completely different. Um, and it was like, well, yes, she was interested in these things. But then Charles also became interested in those things because his wife introduced them to him. Um, and she had to act as like a conduit for that pass- that passage of some of those artworks to Charles because a Catholic state couldn't send them to him as a Protestant king so they would send them to him via her um, and so it sort of didn't do a good job of, of explaining that actually it's much the kind of royal patronage at the time was much more fluid um, than kind of it was being portrayed so that was the only time her other time that her foreign identity her sorry her confessional identity was really on display um and it didn't feel like they got it quite right <laughs> um the art was amazing but yeah. God love them for trying though yeah um, <laughs> and this is this is the thing with heritage you know we are constantly reviewing how we're presenting our history and our heritage sites and like you say it's it, it needs it needs to evolve and it evolves with generations and it evolves with talking to experts who've thought about it like you have so we're going to get on to the hot topic in heritage and we're going to talk about colonies and empires now Catherine of Braganza brought various trading outposts to Charles II as part of her dowry um she came from Portugal for anyone who hasn't listened to um Eilish's episode and you must do that we'll put some links up for it uh so Bombay for example um that's one of the things that comes over with with Catherine and it proves a very useful place to possess so how can heritage sites reconcile the part that Catherine played in founding the British Empire I know she's often credited with it um and how do we feel about it at this moment at this time of recording yeah so as you say obviously this is kind of like the hot topic at the moment how do we decolonize our heritage sites how do we kind of engage with those narratives that are so important we need to engage with them and Catherine's dowry included as you say um 
Bombay, which is now Mumbai, um, and also Tangier and kind of various trading agreements and other things. And she's also remembered for popularizing tea in England, which is fundamentally linked to colonialism and expansion. Um, so it's really interesting to look at how Catherine is represented currently in heritage sites in relation to this. So um, there's some very old interpretation at Edinburgh Castle um, in one of their regimental museums, which really celebrates her for being this queen of empire um, because their regiment went to Tangier and that was their first battle honour. So it does this whole thing about Catherine brought Tangier and then so, however many years later, like that was the regiment's first battle honour and blah, 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 and really kind of celebrates that the expansion of empire and it's a very it is a very old piece of interpretation um and you know like you can see that maybe we wouldn't write it the way it is written now um but that one was really interesting because it made me kind of think that Catherine is where she can't be the wife the mother of children she is the mother of an empire um and that's kind of where she gets to keep a little position in the English historic narrative, which is really interesting. Um, and obviously now we're probably going to start approaching that in a different way. Um, and in terms of just the decolonization of the monarchy in this period in general, it's really interesting because so there was another temporary exhibition, um, Tudors to Windsor's British Royal Portraits. I don't know if you got to that one. Mm -hmm. um, it was at Greenwich. Um, so it was in the National Maritime Museum. And they did a little little bit of colonization of some of the portraits um and when they were doing that they were only doing it on people who didn't lead directly to the modern monarchy um and were deemed as unsuccessful and in most cases were catholic so um they talked about it a lot for james the seventh and second and then they also briefly mentioned it for like some of the catholic mistresses um and other than that no one else got decolonized including catherine um which was really interesting um and some of that can also be seen um, that for a long time um, colonialism empire was seen as a masculine thing and it was assumed that women couldn't be involved in it um, and because of that um, a lot of kind of heritage sites um, won't explore women within that theme um, so it's sort of like yeah we can decolonize the men but they weren't decolonizing the women to the same extent but it's really interesting that everyone who was decolonized in that space was catholic um, because that goes back to that well now we're protestant so we can't kind of <laughs> the we can't present a negative image of protestantism in the early modern period but we can of catholicism because that's fine um because the modern monarchy and the kind of national religion is not is not catholicism um yeah so the so as i said earlier the national portrait gallery in london has really tried to decolonize their narrative um and so they've reopened in the summer after kind of three years of massive re re renovations sorry i can't speak today um <laughs> and um they talk about both charles ii and james um and discuss them in terms of empire and colonialism but what's really weird is that they own one of the most amazing portraits of Catherine and they've not put it in the gallery. And it would actually be a great portrait to explore her dowry through because yeah. it's the portrait that was probably painted just before her marriage. Um, so that would have been an amazing painting to include and to discuss queenship and colonialism. Um, but in general, they have kind of done a better job um, of unpicking it than before. Um, and so, yeah, it's really interesting because 
these queen consorts are barely, as we said, represented at all. Um, and we want to represent them as kind of full people. Mm. Um, but at the same time, they are all kind of connected to colonialism and empire. And we do need to recognize that. And we do need to discuss that. Um, and there, are, again, there are plenty of objects that we can discuss it through. Um, so I think it's about how we kind of approach putting some of those objects in those spaces. Now we have that, that conversation. Actually, it's interesting. While I've got you here, um, could you define um, decolonizing someone? How do we, how do we decolonize somebody? Cause it's a word that we sort of read a lot. And I'm thinking yeah, if we, if we've sort of we're reading it and we're we're sort of getting it by context, but can you define it? What what do, what does that mean? Yeah, so interestingly, decolonize used to mean and still means if you're discussing it in certain historical contexts, something completely different. Um it basically means when the empire started to collapse and like kind of British people in those other kind of places were coming back um, and were kind of destroying evidence and all those sorts of things. So that's kind of one meaning of the word. And then when we're talking about it in terms of education um, and heritage and all those sorts of things, what we're really talking about is looking at how we're presenting historical narratives and looking at how we've completely either ignored or misrepresented kind of the um, the history of empire and colonialism and how we need to approach that um, in a new way um, and to unpick those narratives. So that earlier kind of example of Catherine in the Regimental Museum is a really good example of how at one point in time, um, kind of the prevailing attitude um, in Britain would have been to kind of celebrate her and to celebrate that connection. Um, Whereas now we recognise that actually all of that was connected to the enslavement of thousands of people and that led to kind of horrific things um, and that we need to be discussing that and recognising that. Um, and it gets a lot of people on both sides very fired up and very upset. Um, and there's this feeling from kind of the the anti-decolonisation side that it's... Um, you know, that it's an attack on English culture or on kind of people's national identity. Um, and it's not. That's that's not what it's trying to do. It's trying to provide us with a fuller understanding of history and of what has been happening and to help us kind of understand how we've got to where we are now. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's really important. Um, and, yeah, I think museums are definitely even in kind of the last kind of few years last year's um museums association conference focused on it um and it's people are working on it amazingly but with all things it, it, as i said earlier it's going to take funding and it's going to take time um and it's very easy um again for people on both sides to get very upset and worried when maybe there isn't like it hasn't happened yet there's a plan or there's a discussion and nobody's sure what that's going to look like um and it can it's very complex um and difficult um but it's definitely something we should be doing it's it's complex it's difficult but it's exciting and let's face yeah. it if if history is not making you slightly uncomfortable and a bit on edge you're just not doing it right um no, exactly exactly <laughs> yeah we need to be uncomfortable and we need to recognize yeah what, yeah, makes, what actually happened um yeah, you've got to yeah. think you've got to, it's got to make you think it's got to be thought provoking because by only by having those conversations can we make ourselves better in future generations we stand by that here at history yeah. hack um so we we touched on national identity yes this is this is important um 
So do you think the national identity of the heritage sites themselves and the historical associations that that manage them, so whether whether we're looking at a castle in England, whether we're looking at a castle in Scotland, um, do you think this has affected how they represent their Stuart Queen's consort, such as such as Catherine? You know, they're not English, they're not British. Why would anyone want their face on a tea towel? Do you think it affects that, that they're not one hundred percent? And I think um, the thing that kind of we should remember when we're talking um, about the monarchy and representations of the monarchy, as we kind of touched on earlier, is the importance of inheritance and of kind of longevity um, and legitimacy, and that's really enforced by the fact that we have a modern monarchy and that we're still kind of moving to a point as opposed to moving to a point that no longer exists. Um, so those themes still are really important. Um, and there's a really strange kind of um, approach to the national identity of these people that is like, oh, well, if the father's English or Scottish, well, then obviously the child is English or Scottish. And you're like, well, actually, Charles I was like half Danish um, and had huge amounts of communication um with his danish family like um anna's brothers came to visit scotland and england um you know him and his brother knew these people they were not abstract far away um kind of family connections and anna was really um really in contact with her kind of family all over kind of europe and very proud of that and very um very aware of that um and it, it just kind of gets reduced that well, as long as you're the son of an English or or the daughter of an English or a Scottish monarch, well, then you're English or Scottish. And a national ident- like identity, um, national and personal, is so much more complicated than that. Um, and so, yeah, it's 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 quite strange. Um, everybody kind of gets reformed into the perfect English or the perfect British um, monarch or child, um, when in reality that's not really what was going on. Um, and in terms of the national identity of the heritage sites themselves, what's really interesting with the difference between the English and the Scottish ones, so if you're looking at, say, sites in London to sites in Edinburgh, um, especially with James VI and I, a lot of um, scholarship around him is very um, kind of written from an Anglo-centric perspective um and so you go there um and you can see the scottish interpretation in the heritage sites reacting against that kind of english superiority that is presented in the kind of older historiography and you can see them kind of reasserting scotland and mm. reasserting edinburgh and james as important um kind of cultural patrons um and as kind of and mary queen of scots um as renaissance monarchs um and they really make a point of that being a scottish thing um and you can see that kind of tension between um yeah between the two representations um and with james it is most clearly seen in most english sites will call him James the First. He's not James the First, he's James the Sixth and First. And in Scotland he will always either be James the Sixth or he'll be James the Sixth and First. And the regnal numbers really make a difference and you can really see it. Um and if anybody's a kind of been to the Queen's galleries, um so there's one attached to Buckingham Palace and there's one attached to Holyrood House. Um they put the same exhibitions on in those spaces, but one of them is slightly smaller, the Scottish one is slightly smaller and they edit 
kind of some of the text before it goes out. And it's really fascinating if you want to go to a Stuart exhibition, go to one in London and then go to the one in Edinburgh, because there will be a difference, even down to the audio guide being read in a kind of Scottish accent in comparison to a Queen's English accent, um, if you're in the London version. Um, and it's just fascinating how much kind of that sense of identity comes into play in those sites. Um, yeah. <laughs> No, I, I think it's wonderful. There's a there's a part of me that you know, when when I'm when I'm up in Scotland at heritage sites, it's it's like coming home because they really they really have. It feels like they are reclaiming their Stuart yeah. monarchy and you know, the fact that it is far older than our Stuart monarchy here in England. Um, it's you know it's a, a long and sort of difficult relationship that we've got, but it's um I really enjoy it when I'm up there I enjoy how how they present it but it's even things like going up there as as an English person and someone who who has been through the English schooling system and of, of British history the fact that I had never considered until last year at Stirling Castle that Elizabeth II was there Elizabeth I it yes had, it had never even crossed my tiny mind that of course Elizabeth I was Elizabeth I of England. She wasn't involved. She didn't represent Scotland in any way. So, of course, when when we have Elizabeth II, they're like, hang on, we haven't had one before. <laughs> We've only had yeah, and that's... And people blew up post boxes. Yeah, think... yeah, there was, yeah, people went, yeah, there was protests. There was um, kind of people like sending petitions in saying we should be referring to her as Elizabeth I here. Um, and that is something I actually talk about in the kind of my thesis conclusion is talking about how important James's regnal numbers are um, and how I've spoken to some members of the English academic community who kind of go, oh, well, it's not that important. He's James I, isn't he? Because that was his more important kind of title. And you're like, no, like he had a whole Scottish reign before that. And if we take out the the six then we are ignoring that part of his reign um but then clearly it's still so important because in 1953 that was still the attitude to elizabeth yeah. as a queen <laughs> like that was still um so important um and that's been so interesting doing the study at a point when by the end of it we were in the context of monarchical death and succession because so much material was being produced in so many different ways then that especially because Charles III's name kind of links back to Charles I and Charles II, there was so much discussion around that and so many kind of little things that being my area kind of like, I thought, oh, look at that. So even the Queen's um, last a portrait for her last jubilee she's sitting in windsor castle and there's a window and there's a blurred like it's kind of blurry out the window but the statue that you can see blurred out behind the window is of charles ii um and to me that is that is completely purposeful that is a completely purposeful here is a king who was restored we continued having the monarchy like here is a point where we could see the disintegration of the monarchy so we're going to try to make yeah. this as smooth as possible. Um, and in terms of how many, we've had a lot of Stuart representations in temporary heritage sites over the last five or six years. And all of them have been made in the knowledge that the Queen was getting older and that there's the inevitable death in succession. Um, so I think that's fascinating. <laughs> wonderful it's it's been incredible to watch it's uh, yeah, as a as as a royal watcher it's <laughs> it's just been 
absolutely amazing to watch but you know this is the thing with with history and heritage and how things change and how things evolve we could come to a point where in 20 30 50 years um and and further into the future we may have history books where elizabeth is referred to as elizabeth the second and first yeah because especially if especially if scotland becomes independent and wants to review how history is taught and how history is um written that would be i could i could see that absolutely happening that she would be referred to by by dual um dual titles but this is i think this is you and me um sitting down with a glass of wine and we could <laughs> yes. talk all day i'm conscious of time um so we will start wrapping up let's just have one more point on catherine of braganza because we want to talk about her here um she was a patron of the arts she she loved art as well um and tea obs there must be so many opportunities for heritage sites to bring her in let's how would you how would you do it if you you're in charge how do you get catherine in places i've actually mostly thought of this from kind of the parenthood perspective i would love an exhibition on like medieval and early modern women pregnancy and parenthood and i would love it to be a co-collaboration with kind of charities and stuff with other people like modern artists or just members of the community who have experienced those things then responding in a variety of creative ways to those paintings and those narratives and those things sitting side by side i'd absolutely love that um for catherine i think it would be absolutely fascinating if we had an exhibition that brought together all of the things that we have about her and then all of the things um that are in portugal about her because what Eilish kind of mentioned, um, I think, in the last podcast, is that she returns to Portugal. She is a regent. She's a queen regent of Portugal. Um, and I went to Lisbon last year and I mentioned her um, to just just a shop person that I was like buying something off, having a chat with. Um, and she said, oh, because she's our queen and your queen. And that was a fascinating interaction um and there's statues of catherine and discussions of catherine and tea in portugal um that obviously all linked to colonialism again and kind of how was that being kind of um approached in the kind of early 90s and i think that would be fantastic to bring all that together and create a really well-rounded exhibition about her and one that didn't shy away from decolonizing her but also made sure that we weren't placing her in this really bad position because she didn't have children um i think there's so much we could do (laughs) i would i would go to that exhibition but on my previous point about you and i getting a glass of wine i think it's us getting a glass of wine in lisbon yeah i think this is where we start this i've got the perfect little place we can sit overlooking the water it's great (laughs) this sounds wonderful thank you so much for coming and joining me today amy where can we follow you and follow your work Yep. So you can um, follow me on Twitter um, at Amy E. Saunders. um, And um, yeah, from there, I've got kind of a link into all my talks and things like that. So, yeah. Excellent. Good stuff. Keep up the good work and let's get the Stuart Queens back into things. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me, Charlie. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop 
supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book.